You 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 know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. You you know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. Should we talk about the future? The year two thousand. In the year two thousand. <laughs> in the year two thousand. Uh, which was the greatest. Uh, greatest sketch ever and also that was the greatest sketch ever it's been so long since that was actually I mean they kept doing it after the year 2000 because that ended up being part of the joke but it's Uh been so long since they were actually doing that I mean the year 2000 felt like the future even when we were growing up in in the 90s (laughs) it's like it wasn't that far off but the year 2000 certainly felt like the future yeah. I mean, I feel like 2020 has a futuristic feel of, of its own, but not to the extent of the year 2000. For some it's reason, a little, 2010, not so much. A little, 2020 is like a little robotic. <laughs> Wait, in, in what sense? 2020. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. It just is. Just don't think about it too hard. It just is. Would you believe that today is the day they go to in Back to the Future? <laughs> That was, that was also a, my favorite John Boyce joke. Uh, yeah, the year 2000, the year he graduated from high school. Wow. Yeah. That was it. That's apparently all we remember from that year. Yeah, good year. Good year. I always felt like, so Katie graduated from a school that was nicknamed the Falcons, right? Uh, yeah. The Hanford Falcons was their nickname? That sounds right. And... They graduated in the millennium, so they were the Millennium Falcons, which I thought wow. was really cool around the year 2000. That is that is pretty remarkable. Have you told Babyist Fantasy Genius about that? <laughs> He's, I think it might be over his head. I don't know <laughs> if he knows about graduating classes. <laughs> or what millennium means. <laughs> yes. But, but he loves the Millennium Falcon, but either way. It, it definitely felt like, like for you to have just randomly have graduated like our mom graduated in 1969 which is like that is the perfect year to have graduated high school right <laughs> and then and then but just like you like you say it and you're just like yeah graduated in 69 right it like sounds like something and then the year 2000 like, yeah, graduated 69 even 2000 and yeah. then there's just like 2003 that's when i graduated <laughs> it's like okay great i remember doing something like is probably elementary school age where it was like a gathering of a bunch of kids our same age and it was like you guys are the class of 2000 and it was way too far off at that point to really understand what that meant but it definitely seemed like a cool idea it was like you were the first class of the future yes unless you ask people who say that the millennium didn't start until 2001 uh-huh. which i find a ridiculous argument for the record uh-huh. like like the seinfeld episode and i'm not at all it's not at all motivated reasoning Okay, it's no, it just doesn't sound good. That's all that matters. It's just like we've been over this. What the technical definition of something is doesn't actually matter. What matters is what people determine the definition of it is, right? Exactly. There's no like natural order of millennia. Millennium, a millennium is whenever you want it to be. The what real millennium like, is the friends we made along the way. Was this Pedro Martinez who had like a a, a ten out perfect game or whatever? Oh, you mean not not ten any. Ten outs. Not that impressive. Not that impressive. Yes, when he was pitching for the uh, – first got to the Expos in 94. 
for the Spurs, right? It happened. Like, it, it, it happened during Woodstock 94. In the year 2000. Uh, <laughs> but it was like, that is more impressive than throwing an actual perfect game. Because the history books don't matter. Wikipedia is all that matters. I think technically he took the perfect game into the ninth inning, if we're going to remember some years 1994. He took the perfect game into the ninth inning? It was Or into the tenth inning. He had nine perfect innings. Oh, and he lost into the tenth. Same with, I think the dude's name was Armando Galarraga, who got, like, screwed on the 27th out and then got the 28th out. It was like he had a 28-out perfect game. I guess he only took the perfect... Oh, you know what we're wildly misremembering this? Oh, no, here it is. Yeah, nine perfect innings a game against the San Diego Padres before giving up a hit in the bottom of the 10th. Oh, whatever. It's a perfect game. I was it was actually because... less, less impressive than Armando Galarraga's. Also in 1994, took a perfect game through seven and a third innings before getting thrown out of the game. <laughs> oh, no, I guess... Yeah. Yeah, he threw My a push My favorite part about Remember Some Years is when we remember some other years within remembering those years. <laughs> Anyway, so the, the year 2000. Where, where should we start? Well, I feel like we typically start this off with sports, which was kind of a bit of a down year in Seattle sports. Which is weird because the Mariners made the playoffs. That's like the forgotten Mariners team, I mean, I, would I, say. I had stopped paying attention to the Mariners by this point. I did I, not care at all. I was not quite as out on the Mariners in the year 2000 as you were. Uh, so Griffey had gotten traded during the 1999 2000 off season. What what year was that? Was this 99 or 2000 that he got traded? Where he was actually traded? Yeah. We have to look this up. Well, it's funny because like you remember when you were like, "Can you tell me who Randy Johnson got traded for?" And I knew all the players, right? It was like the entire trade. I remembered that day perfectly. Ken Griffey Jr. being traded. It's just kind of like a hazy memory of him being gone. It happened I, in February. It's very different from happening at the trade deadline when you're like, like all you're thinking about is trades. Why do you trade King Griffey Jr. in February, too? Like well, He demanded a trade. He only wanted to go to one team. So Can you imagine like, in, in, the, in the year 2020, a baseball player, a, 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 the highest level professional athlete, demanding to go to Cincinnati? He's from there. I mean, LeBron James did sign. He didn't demand a trade there, but he did sign with the Cavaliers as a free agent. <laughs> Still, like, Cincinnati. Whew, wow. That is right. a crazy one. Okay, Can so, you rem- remember which players were in this trade? Well, so I know they got Mike Cameron. Who was awesome. And there was a pitcher named Brian something? Brett Tomko. Oh, Brett Tomko. That's all I got. That's Although there was a there was a Brian Price, and I guess he was a pitching coach. Uh, Antonio Perez. <laughs> they for a pitching coach too, yeah. and Al Michaels. Oswald <laughs> <laughs> uh, Antonio Perez, who was a minor leaguer who never ended up playing a game for the Mariners, and then another minor leaguer. And that man changed his name eventually to David Ortiz. <laughs> uh, another minor leaguer named Jake Meyer. Yeah, I was definitely not coming up with those. Wait, do you remember who the Mariners got for David Ortiz? Then David Arias. David Arias. Yeah. Sterling Hitchcock. No, that was the Yankees. I'm pretty sure I know this one. I, I don't think check. I know. I thought they just dumped him then. No, he was traded to the Twins. <clears throat> but I thought he just got traded for, like, nothing. He, yes, I am correct about this. He was traded for... Well, you didn't say it before. Dave you Hollins. You said you were correct. Dave Hollins. <laughs> Dave Hollins. There well, I got go. it quickly enough that I think you have to concede that I was probably <laughs> Yes, yes, I'm correct about this. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't told you what the answer is, but I assure you I'm correct. 
All right, and they also got a reliever named Jake Meyer, who uh, um, never. But it was like that. That was it, right? Like we, like I, I mean, I, I've said this many times during I remember some years. I think I was more of a Ken Griffey Jr. fan than I was a Mariners fan, or even just the I, that whole team. You know what I mean? It was like the entire heart of it was gone. And for whatever reason, we never really connected with A-Rod that much. Like, I remember when he, I think this would have been 2001, I guess, when he came back with the Rangers. Yeah. Or was he on the team in 2001? No, he was not on the team in 2001. Like, I remember seeing people be so viscerally upset at Alex Rodriguez and just being like, why do you care? You know what I mean? Like, it, the whole thing felt so stupid to me for people being this, like, so insanely mad at him or whatever. It was just like, I don't, it was basically like, I don't care about this thing. So nobody should care about this thing. Hmm. Right. But it was basically well, like, I mean, nobody should, you know, treat Alex Rodriguez like that because of the fact that he left the team as a free agent. Like, you know, this whole, whole justification of, but he lied about not wanting to take more money. And like, you know, it's always everybody always comes up with the other reason why it actually is instead of just the real reason is that he left. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you're sad. It's not like if he had. I'm gone, sad that I don't get to watch him play baseball anymore. It's not like if he had gone to a better team and signed for less money that you'd be like, you know what? I respect that decision by A. Rod. <laughs> the only time that has, that has ever happened is when LeBron left Cleveland and he had already brought them their first championship in. 60 years like nobody could say shit to lebron at that point and then kevin durant when he left the warriors because people actually didn't like him that much though with the warriors fans didn't actually like him that much yes hashtag steph better and but neither of those were the same <laughs> right with a run steph didn't look too much better actually didn't they <laughs> <laughs> they've been playing quite well lately but again we're not remembering last week uh a rod in 2000 went 316 41 home runs 420 on base, 606 slugging percentage. He was very good at the baseball. Yes. I mean, Edgar the contract th- that he got was 10 years, $250 million, right? Yes, I think maybe. Which two- still would be a pretty big contract now. Correct. 20 years later. It's like the, the inflation in baseball hasn't quite increased as much as it has maybe in other sports. Yeah, I think people saw how much the Rangers regretted that contract. Like, A-Rod was the best player, and even he still probably wasn't quite worth that. Uh, Edgar that season, 324, 37 home runs, 1,002 ops. The Mariners, uh, oh, I forgot about Aaron Seeley, man. I, I have not thought about Aaron Seeley for a long time. Uh, a, Jamie Moyer, shockingly bad in 2000. He had a 5.49 ERA. Yeah, but, take uh, that, Fred, Jamie Moyer. Freddie Garcia, good from day one. John Halama somehow won 14 games. With a 5.08 ERA. Oh, that was the year of the, of the arrival of Kazuhiro Sasaki. Ah. And was, he, was, the, a... with the, was he the pitcher or the catcher? No. <laughs> Kenji Jojimo was the catcher? That's correct. Sasaki is the closer. That team had an amazing <clears throat> bullpen uh, with Jose Paniagua. Arthur Rhodes is the lefty specialist. Jose Mesa was also involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they beat the White Sox in the first round of the playoffs, sweeping them in the I had division no series. idea that that happened. By the way, like, you saying that to me right now, it's like, it's the first time that I have ever heard those words. They played the White Sox? That's correct. Wow. I don't remember anything about that White Sox team. James Baldwin started Game 3, uh, which the Mariners, I believe, won on a walk-off 
squeeze play? <laughs> I have no idea. I know he was a brilliant artist also. <laughs> yeah, Carlos got Guillen bunted for a single that won the game. Because you know who scored the winning run? Someone we... Mariner's legend. Oh, I, oh, I remember joining the team in like May of that year, right before my prom. Ricky Henderson. Oh, Hendu? I think it's Dave Henderson. Is Hendu I know. I know. We're going to have to remember some previous years. There are a lot of Hall of Famers on the 2000 Mariners, all things considered. So there you go. Uh, the, the and then what, they lost to the... They got swept by the Yankees? They lost 4-1. 4-2 to the Yankees in the LCS. Great. I mean, that was, like, amazing for them to get that far at that point. There was no shame in it that year. Uh, the Sonics, in the year 2000, bounced back from that terrible 99 season. They got a lot younger in 99-2000. Uh, Richard Lewis stepped into a larger role. Ruben Patterson was starting uh, for that team. That was kind of even more so than 99, kind of the changeover, where Gary Payton was the only holdover now left from those great teams of the early 90s and mid-90s. Uh, Vin Baker was not quite as bad. We mentioned Horace Grant last week. Oh, Brett Berry came in in a trade for Hersey Hawkins, one of the great trades in Sonic's history that actually took place in the summer of 99. That was one of the great trades in Sonic's history. I mean, the Sonics actually have made some, like, shockingly good trades to keep things going. Because, you, I mean, you look at that, the Peyton for Ray Allen trade has to be, like, maybe yes. the best trade in Sonic's history. It's up there. So they flipped. A lot of times where they flipped an older player who was on their way out for a younger player who, for whatever reason, their previous situation wasn't working. Right. And then Brett Barry was great for many years, and Hersey Hawkins was out of the league within a couple of years because he was he was quite old. Similar to Gary Payton or I mean, Peyton hung around a bit longer, just not in Milwaukee. They, that trade came up last week on a Bucks broadcaster a couple weeks ago, and like their play-by-play broadcaster still is clearly upset about that trade. <laughs> They're going to win 60-something games this year. They've got Giannis. He's still upset about the Real trade, and I am here for it. <laughs> All right, so the Sonics suit that year. He's like me still being upset at Rip Hamilton. Very well. That's the same thing. I don't know. Oh my god. I mean, I'm not upset at Rip Hamilton. I'm still upset about that play. So the Sonics play the Jazz in the first round of that year's playoffs. A heavily favored Jazz team lose the first two in Utah, come back home, win two in Seattle, set up the deciding game five, a game that was much closer than it really had any business being. This was like Richard Lewis's coming out party in this series, and they lose game five, 96-93, with Chuck Person missing a three-pointer yeah, in the closing stages of the game. I remember like getting, I think I got like re-back in, what, see where the Sonics, eight? Uh, they were the seven seed. They were the, and then the Jazz went on to the finals that year? No, no, they weren't that good at this point. This, this was a, the next a later round. team. I believe they got beat by Portland in the next round, and that was the year that the Lakers beat the Blazers in the conference finals. So th- this was the was this the Kobe to Shaq alley oop here? Correct. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I remember Chuck Person taking that shot and being like, "He's gonna hit this." It really <laughs> felt like he was going to. It felt like... like a team of destiny. I don't know if I felt like Chuck Person was going to make that shot. He had, he came off the bench cold. He played 15 seconds of the entire game. And he was like 40-plus at that time, right? Uh, late 30s. <clears throat> he was, at that point, yeah, he was only 35. 
Really? He was only th- he felt like he was fifty. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, how ancient did Chuck Person seem like? He seemed very ancient. I'm not disputing that. <laughs> so the next year, the Sonics they try to trade Vin Baker for Patrick Ewing. It falls through. They end up trading a package led by Horace Grant for Patrick Ewing. And we are super excited about this team because, you know, they were on the rise. Now they're adding a Hall of Favor, uh, leaving the Knicks for the first time. And then they start the next season six and nine under Paul Westfall, who then gets fired. <laughs> Literally the only memories I have of Patrick Ewing being on the Sonics are looking at him on the sideline with the giantest bandages on his knees. No, they're knee pads. They're not bandages. He, he just had the hugest knee pads on. Oh, so, like, yeah. It's <laughs> all that I remember about Patch. I do not remember him ever attempting a shot. You like can if clothe I tried a small child with his knee pads. <laughs> it's like, that's Sonic's legend, Patrick Ewing, to you. But, <laughs> but it was like, I cannot picture him wearing a Sonics uniform, all I can p- picture are his knees and those giant knee pads. <laughs> so during the late stage of the Westfall era, I when we attended our games up in Section 2, 222, home of the real fans. We were uh, 2A I, by this point. No, I don't think we I think we moved to 2A in 2002, hmm. maybe 2001. Uh, I had taken to bringing a fire Westfall to the games. I remember walking around on that. You know, we'd always play the day after Thanksgiving. And I think it was this year when me and Mikey Wynn were there walking around. We had our Fire Westfall signs. And I think they fired him like very soon thereafter. Uh, that is correct. In fact, they fired him on Saturday, November 25th. Yeah, so we got him fired. <laughs> they played the Clippers. The or, young... I'm sorry, they, they, well, they fired him on Monday, November 27th. This last game was Saturday, November 25th. Th- this was the Clippers, who I think Darius Miles might have been a rookie. They were like a like fun young team. Oh, so and, fun. And they had Quentin Richardson and Darius Miles. And I remember playing that game. Lamar Odom? The... Yeah, but, like the Clippers had fun players for being the Clippers. Um, and uh, walking around the fire Westfall signs. And then they fired him. So the first game, so Nate McMillan takes over is his replacement wow. on an interim basis. Very exciting for Sonics fans. His first two games as head coach, the Sonics go into Portland and win 105-93, and then come home and beat the Lakers by 33 points. Wow. 121-88. By the way, the Sonics like had the Lakers number at that point. Shaq well, they, could they not had defend the Kobe style, number. Ruben Patterson. They, they did also have that, yes. Uh, and... You want to talk about reinvigorated. That's like the moment that got me, not like I wasn't a Sonics fan. Obviously, we had season (laughs) tickets, but I got so much more into the Sonics at that point. And you can draw a direct line between Paul Westfall getting fired and Nate McClellan getting fired (laughs) as his replacement and me becoming an NBA writer. I'm not exaggerated. Wow. Okay. Later that season, was in that 2000-2001 season, we can remember this next year, but that's when I started writing out the Sonics for bskball.com. Beat you out for that honor. So that's a sliding doors moment for you if you had become the Sonics writer for bskball.com. Yep. All right, so the uh, – well, I, I don't know why we didn't start with the Huskies, but we'll get to them, I guess, at the end. The Seahawks, a very forgettable 2000 season. Really weird, right? Because I felt like they had a lot of steam heading in from the previous year, but then, but they, then they moved. Yes. From the well, obviously, when did the kingdom get imploded? Did we talk about this? Did we talk about this? We talked about this last week. Still coming later this month. 
Okay. That special edition on okay. the 20th anniversary We're not of the Kingdoms. That. So the King- Kingdoms imploded. The Seahawks played their first of two seasons at Husky Stadium. And I feel like this was the time period that they just didn't really have a lot of identity, right? Because the Seahawks identity through their first couple decades as a franchise, and still to this day, it's really about the crowd. Like the building is the as Im- it's as important to the Seahawks as the team is, right? And it was like, and Husky Stadium is a great setting for the Seahawks to play in, but it's just it's not their home, right? Like yeah. it, it's a different fan base, it's a different beast entirely. Like Husky fans, they know what they're doing in that stadium. They know that they are eighty-five to hundred years old, and that they are going to be <laughs> sitting through the entire game, oh, no. right? But like, or or, or they are. 16 to 20 years old and they're going to be fucking wasted and have no idea what's going on right there's no in between but seahawks how fans are think college students are See... <laughs> how old could they be um 30 Six, 16 to 10? 20 <laughs> the <laughs> they bring younger cousins with them uh everybody's got a google uh seahawks fans are all of the ages in between right like and, and it's, it's just like the the whole climate of a Husky game is so different than the climate of a Seahawks game. And I really think that the Seahawks in that building just don't make sense. I also remember it being very hard for them to sell the building out at that point because I guess it was slightly larger, probably Husky Stadium in that era than than the Kingdom was. So I remember like all these games those two years being blacked out locally, all the home oh games. Oh, my God. No wonder it was forgettable. We literally did not see them. Do they still have that rule, or is that rule gone? I think it might be gone. I don't know for sure, though. The the fucking blackout rule in the NFL. Oh, my God. Can I give you some Seahawks scores from that season? They lose their opener at Miami 23-0. In Week 6, they lost at Carolina 26-3. In Week 8, they lost at Oakland 31-3. And they lost their finale at home to Buffalo 42-23. So it was a rough season. Because you look at it, and it's like, this team doesn't look bad on paper. Right. Well, they also went six and six in games started by John Kitna. Or, or who's the, was it? Heward, who was the quarterback in the other games? Brock Heward went zero and four in his four starts. Wow, and he stands on this pedestal when well, he went zero and four in those games. His, his, I mean, take it for what his uh, his adjusted yards per attempt were actually better than John Kitna's. So I don't know if it was really zero and four, and he wants to run the ball more. Hmm. <laughs> really makes you think. But no, you look at the roster and you're like, John Kittle wasn't a bad NFL quarterback, right? No. Like, he's pretty much... I mean, it's basically the same roster as the year before. Is it... Kittle's like... I think he's above replacement level. I was going to say John Kittle is the oh, definition yeah. of replacement level. He's the definition above, of average. He is an average NFL quarterback. Like, he can, he can lead an okay team to an 8-8 eight eight record. Uh, but also, the rookie year of Sean Alexander, who I think we were pretty fucking stoked about. Yeah. Uh, also, this was Daryl Jackson's rookie year, right? Yeah, rookie Daryl Jackson's rookie season. Like a... <clears throat> Chris McIntosh didn't pan out, but still a strong 2000 draft class for the Seahawks. And, and it was like, you still have Walt Jones, you still have Cortez Kenley. Like, looking through at this team, and you're like, there are like a lot of massive weaknesses, but for whatever reason, they just weren't good. And I do have to think that that the building just was part of it. And by the time, we'll talk about this two years from now, but the time that they got to CenturyLink, it was like everything was ready to go. You know? Like the roster was all in place. Like 
Sean Alexander was a rookie here, and he kind of had a couple of forgettable years, more or less. But then he was ready to go by the time that they got well, to. Well, we'll remember something in 2001. But by the way, they went they went seven and nine their first year, and it, then, you, you it wasn't even saying, Quest like, yet. It wasn't even Quest yet. It was Seahawks, Seahawks Stadium. Stadium. Seahawks Stadium. It was like the the whole roster was like, and there was a lot of youth that came after that. But like they were ready to be the team. Like Holmgren had them at the point where it's like this is who the Seahawks are going to be. I, I truly wonder, he must have known that they were going to go through these couple of years at Husky Stadium, but he might not have really understood just how kind of average they would be, or for, really forgettable, like you said. Yep. Well, they went 9-7 and seven in 2001. Hmm. I'm curious to find out about more about that next year. And uh, missed, the, missed the playoffs? They were an old team in 2001. Yes. Oh, that's the Corn Robinson year. Corn Robinson and Steve Hutchinson. Hello! <laughs> The Husky men's basketball team was very bad. Were they? I mean, the 99-2000 season, they also were in a temporary home because Heckett was getting renovated. They played at Key Arena that season. Wow, I have no recollection of that. Me neither. Again, <laughs> I remember one game from that season. I think they were playing like UCLA. And you I were so busy watching with the athletes or whatever. What was your zero-hour math class? I swear um, to God. Just the math team. You were so busy with math, Dean, you weren't even paying attention to sports in the year 2000. I mean, I was paying attention to other sports. We'll get to the sport I was paying attention to. How fucking criminal is it to have a zero-hour class before people start school at 7.25 a.m.? The zero-hour class I had was when I was in middle school. I took the class at Taiyi. Okay, that's the only time? I mean, I would, we had math team practice before class. It wasn't practice? school, but it wasn't a class. We're talking about practice? I <laughs> yes. Not a game. Not a game? <laughs> before, your brain should not be, this clearly wasn't science team, right? This was before pop science existed also, and people realized you had to take naps. But <clears throat> it was like, you're trying to get people to do math at like 6.50 a.m.? Fuck that. You should be asleep. Anyway. That's remember. Let's remember some not sleeps. Uh, but UW football in the year 2000 <clears throat> made it back to the top of the mountain. There we go. Made it back to the Rose Bowl for the first time, which, of course, was actually played in 2001, for the first time since 1992. We I, Our expectations were so high going into that season after, like, you know, the fact that they had come second in the Pac-10, it was Neuheisel's first year. It's like, okay, now we've got a full year to get the offense installed. Marcus Tuiasasopo is a senior. And then they come out, and early in the season, in week two, after they didn't beat Idaho by nearly as many points they should have as week one, number four Miami comes to town, and the Huskies beat him 34-29. Oh, my God. Rich Alexis scores a touchdown in his second game. Ken Dorsey goes 15 of 34 in that one. Uh, so at the beginning of this game, there was, was it Sonoris Moss? No. They had, who is that receiver? Santana Moss. Santana Moss, who I wish I remember who the defensive player was. When there was like a play on the sideline, it definitely would have been targeting now. Uh, but when there was like a, he caught a pass on the sideline and some UW cornerback came through and just blew him up, Right. And I was like, oh, shit, like, we have come to play. Do I mean, you remember I, this at all? 
I don't I don't know if I remember that specific play. I think we went. Oh, Tyler Crambrink hit him on a punt return and caused him to fumble. Oh, this must be what you're talking about. On Tyler Crambrink. <laughs> yeah, Tyler Crambrink. <laughs> I I'm pretty sure that we had a haircut schedule during the middle of this game. <laughs> that sounds plausible. I think we did. I think you and me and Dad all went and got haircuts in the middle. Just <clears throat> curse Jan to this day for that. No, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it was either that or like an NBA draft around this time period where we had hair, maybe both. Whereas like, I remember being like, wow, we're consumed by the sporting event, but we have to go get our haircut now. I just remember it the day before like games or the, the morning of like game seven of the 93 Western conference finals against Phoenix. But again, we're remembering other years. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a near perfect season for Husky football where they would have been playing. This was pre BCS championship, right? Uh, no, the BCS existed existed by this point so they could have played in the national championship if it weren't was, for oregon i think it was the first year of the bcs they lost at oregon in week four by a 23 16 final then the next week a huge showdown at home it was uh the famous cousin katie's dad's birthday i remember okay. this i don't really remember that and the huskies <clears> were 33 <throat> 30 against oregon state at home uh, either they made a late field goal or Oregon State missed a late field goal. I can't remember which of those two, but it's one of those two. Well, the Pac-12 was still pretty weak. I mean, we talked about last year at Stanford. No, it wasn't. Being ranked number 25. It was I mean, started out perceived as weak, but they said, we sent two teams to the New Year's Six that year. Oh, so did Oregon State also go? Yeah, and Oregon State went to the Fiesta Bowl where they destroyed Notre Dame that year. Okay. They beat Notre Dame 41-9 to in the festival. So we won two New Year's Six games that year. Correct. Wow. So those games were hardly dominant. They won a lot of close games, 31-28 at Stanford. That was the game where the late Curtis Williams suffered paralysis when he oh was... Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, when he uh, collided heads just before halftime. That was a really emotional game. The, Hus- the Huskies trailed that one late, and then there was, I believe, a touchdown pass from Tuyasa Sopa to Justin Robbins. To win that one, my God! They beat Arizona 35-32, UCLA 35-28, and so going into the last weekend of the Pac-10 season, the Huskies are still behind Oregon, which has not lost in conference play. But Oregon was playing that good Oregon State team in the Civil War. They played. That must have been like a 12:30 kickoff, and so I went over with uh, my friend John Mozika and his dad to go to the Apple Cup in Pullman. Mm-hmm. And we had to find someplace in, like, the Cougar Union building to watch this game as Oregon State knocked off Oregon, opening the door for the Huskies to win the Pac-10. Wow. So that was number six against number five. Yeah. Number wow. eight against number five. I remember driving right. into – I'm reading right now on Wikipedia, and it says that Oregon is ranked number six. They ended up number eight. I'm going with sportsreference.com here. Uh, but – I was in Oregon when that game was happening. Wait, why are you in Oregon? I was down there. This is way too family esoteric. But we were visiting, me and Jan were visiting Ray Jean in Oregon. Huh. I vaguely recall this now that you mention it. And it was after Ray Jean had her accident. We were in the hospital. And being kind of nervous about the Husky game. And then just like instantly us beating the shit out of Wazoo. Oh, it was like, what, it was, it, I, when I list my favorite sporting events, this will always be up there. 51-3, to three, the Huskies won the Apple Cup. 
I, I like, also remember distinctly remember trying to pronounce in that Oregon State Oregon game, trying to pronounce Hushmanzada. Well, I'm still <laughs> struggling with it. <laughs> and there was the people that we were with. They were like, "What's his name?" I was like, "Hushmanzada," and they're like, "Whatever." <laughs> it was just like, and then he eventually went on to be like a pretty good NFL player and played for the Seahawks. Yeah. But that Oregon State team was stacked. Chad Johnson. John, legendary coach. Uh, why am I remembering Jonathan's last name? Jonathan Smith. Yes. I mean, they they had. But I mean, it was Husmansada and Chad Johnson, Jonathan Smith, the quarterback, and then Ken Simonton, who seemed like a really good player at the time. Their running back. Probably a pretty good college running back. Nick Barnett had a good career. I, I mean, it's not um, like the UW running backs went on to a lot of NFL success, and they were very good that season. This was two teams in the Pac-12 who only lost one game. Three, right? Oh, did, did Oregon, Oregon only lose one game too? Oregon might have had a non-conference loss. That uh, I feel like they might have had a non-conference loss that year, but wow. it was like a yeah, three-way tie atop the conference. Wow, man, this was a very good Pac-12. And they I won did. the Holiday Bowl against Texas. They had was... lost at Wisconsin in Week Two by four points. So this was also in Southern California, the last season for Paul Hackett. Oh, before a young man named Pete Carroll took over. Yeah. Wow. So the Huskies go to the Rose Bowl, face Purdue, face Drew Brees in his yep. final college game, and beat him 34-24. <sighs> Still the only Rose Bowl win for the Huskies since I mean, 1991. That's, it's legit the best UW team since 1991. Yeah, Oh, without question. I mean, I don't know if, like, statistically... They're one of the Coach P teams was probably better. You know, the team that went to the college football mm-hmm. playoff was probably a better team on paper. But, like... I guess, yeah, they were only eighth in simple rating system. Well, so maybe the 2014, 2016 team was better. But they also had big challenges and won them. You know, like that non-conference win against Miami. Can you think of the last time UW has won a huge non-conference game? Yes, because it happened two years later against Michigan. Oh. Uh, and since then? No, it was, no, that's it. Boise State is the biggest non-conference win since then. It is wild. I mean, we've had some excellent seasons, but have consistently lost these games in non-conference. Yep. And hopefully that changes this year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No better place than here. No better time than now. All right, um, that went way longer on 2000 sports than I expected. Did you? Let's go to culture. I feel like to, the remember some years always takes longer than you expect. Oh, 100%. Maybe you should just start expecting it to take a long time. <laughs> uh, okay, so <clears throat> 2000 in music. I distinctly remember being, I was a, I guess I was a sophomore in high school. And because I was a sophomore, a freshman into a sophomore year of high school, right? Correct. And I remember sitting in a math class in the fall. So like my sophomore year. And the day that this record had come out, at least I perceived at the time, I don't even know if this is right. uh, There was this girl who was really cool. She was like a junior and her having, she went to the mall at lunch and got a CD. Would I, would I know who this person is? Uh, I don't even remember her name. Okay. Yeah. So I guess not. 
she had a CD that she got, and it was just like, looking at it was the coolest fucking thing I had ever seen. And I was just like, there was like this like girl being so into it, and then just like everything about it was so infectious. And it was, it was little did I know that this was the music that would spark probably the next two decades of music and pop culture, right? This combination of like hip hop and electronic music and rock elements and being like, like elevating hip hop to an artful level, right? Where it's like artists like, like Tower the Creator doesn't exist. Frank Ocean doesn't exist. Solange doesn't exist without Stank on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that checks out. Right? It was like the second that and it came out on Halloween that year on October 31st, 2000. And it was like, without Stank on you, it's like, and especially like listening to it now, you're like really as a record, like Equemini is a better record, which I had no idea at the time because I'd only heard Rosa Parks in the 90s. I never once, I didn't even know what the fuck Equemini was, right? I thought it was pronounced Aquamini, but <laughs> until like 2005, I thought that. But Damn, like, a lot of interludes of this. What? A oh, lot of interludes of this. But like Stankonia has the best singles of like any record ever. I mean, right? it made so much more of an impact on Cube. There's, you cannot pick which is the better single between B.O.B. and So Fresh, So Clean and Miss Jackson. You're just like, pick your poison, right? Like, all of them are perfect songs. And there's like one after another. But without, I think, B.O.B. in particular, it's like the next two decades in music don't happen. And it happened right at the beginning of the, of the decade. Like, right at the turn of the century, it was like, Big Boy and Andre 3000 predicted where music was going. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that was 2000 in music. Now, but <laughs> <laughs> before then, I felt like for me, this was the year that I like transitioned from listening to exclusively Cube and maybe Kiss 106 a little bit or something. And it was like, I think we got the Box Music Channel in the summer of 2000, if I recall correctly. Uh, Sounds reasonable. Which was really important. Oh, uh, so important. <laughs> I think I transitioned by the the big for the first school year, the first half of 2000. I was exclusively listening to Cube, and I think by the second half, I think I was listening to the end. You know, I remember it that summer. Like I specifically remember. So there was there was a math team competition in San Diego <laughs> that summer. Oh, uh, this is when you got really burned on your back. Oh, I got very sunburned. Again, John Bozik and I. Yeah. Should have lubed you down. <laughs> we, were not willing, we, we were not comfortable rubbing sunscreen on each other's backs, and that was a huge mistake. But I remember really the Papa Roach album That's, being a big part of that, that trip and the time in San Diego. We were standing like, in the dorms at San Diego State. We... I liked Papa Roach, this is the record Infest. Yeah, I have no idea what the the name of this, the uh, album was until I think you mentioned it earlier. But I loved Linkin Park. Oh, no. The Hybrid Theory by Linkin Park was like, uh. I like hip-hop and I like rock music, and this has everything I could be looking for, right? It was like, it's like it's rap, but it's also rock. And it's like, sign me up. That record, and I actually, I think 
ironically, long-term, I probably now underestimate just how important that record and Linkin Park in general actually are as a group, where it's like, I remember hearing a story from a coworker of mine who had a boyfriend who was working on a submarine. This was like two years ago or whatever. Her boyfriend was working on a submarine, and when Chester Bennington from Linkin Park died, like the U.S. government was getting all of these letters from people sending things to the people who were on the submarine about it, and they were like, what happened? Because they kept flagging these words like suicide or whatever. And it was like, it was an important cultural moment, right? And at the time, I was just like, Linkin Park rules, and then I forgot about them a year later, right? But like for, for a generation of kids, Linkin Park mattered forever. And for us, it was like, oh, here's this kind of cool thing. It still feels like a little bit like Rage Against the Machine, who I also liked at this time. Like Rage Against the Very Machine. Very Tool. Well, oh god, oh my god. We'll talk about Tool and, and Weezer in 2001, because um, <clears throat> both of them released a record in 2001. I definitely got into Tool in the year 2000, though. Maybe 2001, somewhere around that time. It was like I started taking myself seriously. You know what I mean? Also, by the way, I think the Jay-Z uh, remix album is a pretty lasting thing from Linkin Park. I have never once listened to it. But those songs still play on, like, you know, like, old-school radio stations. I mean, obviously, like, it matters. Uh, also, I, to go back to Papa Roach for a second, I thought it was very notable and mentioned this after we were thinking about this, that Last Resort was in the uh, SNL sketch with Kyle Mooney two weeks ago. <laughs> He was listening to Last Resort. Oh, my God. That's what Papa Roach is distilled to now, right? Papa Roach is a joke, but I'm saying Linkin Park is not a joke. That's uh, fair. Uh, but also, the first half of the year 2000, before I flipped over to listening to rock music, I swear they played this on the end. It was... Like, everywhere. Like Yeah, it, they played it on every station. It was on, like, <laughs> the oldest station. <laughs> Classical... <laughs> Eminem mattered. The Marshall Mathers LP mattered in a way that, like, the first record could not have, you know? And, wait, I'm getting, making sure I have this right. The Slim Shady LP is, is the first big LP. When this was one of the first CDs that I got, and I remember turning it on. We same person, Ray Jean, who I went to go visit in Portland. She would give us like a Tower Records gift certificate every year for Christmas. Oh uh, man, remember Tower Records? Oh. It was like twenty five dollars to Tower Records, which is what a fucking CD cost. Was like they were eighteen dollars sometimes. You could get a whole Spotify account to get all of the music in the world for ten dollars a month. But that that might be a problem for the music industry, as it turns out. But. It's not. Uh, I, I was using it all on tape, so I was able to get multiple ones for the Chevy <laughs> <On> Blazer. <tape. laughs> uh, I remember turning on the Marshall Mathers LP and like listening to it late one night in the year 2000, and feeling and this was like I guess around Christmas, so it had been out for like six months at that point, but it still felt very vital because music didn't end as quickly as it ends now, you know. Uh, and listening to it and being like sick to my stomach because I was like. This is so aggressive music. I don't know if I'm comfortable with this as a 15-year-old or whatever. <laughs> it came out, like, 
two days before my 15th birthday being like, he is talking about some things that I am just not okay with. And then just fucking bumping that shit for the next year after that. Right. Cause almost every song of that was perfect. Yeah. I don't know if I'd say perfect, but yeah. But it's just like, there's so many jams and so many skits. <laughs> so many skits. Oh, why? Just why? The amount of songs that are under two minutes long. One, two, three, four. Only four. Like actual songs? Or skit? Well, are you counting? You're saying I'm, that is skits. Skits. But like when it ends with criminal, it's just like, you're just, you're so in, right? Like the whole, the whole worldview and the perspective where it's like, you, you can't help but get sucked in because he's so good at rapping. And there is a perspective, even if it's skewed culturally and has led to probably terrible things in all of society after you're just like, I, I can see this perspective through this record and it's the best Eminem record. And like one of the best rap records ever. And also that summer. Hot shit. (laughs) (laughs) We were obsessed. I remember seeing it on the Box Music Channel for the first time because the Box would get stuff before Cube would sometimes. Country Grammar by Nelly was like, what is this? Right? And that whole record after, I think Katie had it. And it was just like one of those things, you know, when somebody like has a CD, you know, like in the early 2000s, when somebody has a CD <laughs> yeah. and it's. Been, and now I, I definitely know about that now. All you want to listen to. The only two times that I really remember this were Harlem World by Mace. And oh god, what is that Nelly record? Is it called Country Grammar? It is called it, Country Grammar. And Country so, Grammar by Nelly, and just being like, and that like the song EI. I'm just like, I only want to listen to this song. Okay, so one of the things we should mention here, by the way, and I, I don't think this has come up uh, yet, is the year 2000 was the first time we ever had internet at home. Like we were very slow adopting on internet, and I remember forcing our mom to get it so that I could complete a like I was doing for like my IB science requirement. I forget exactly what it was, but I was doing a paper on like the effects of gravity at Coors field on baseball Uh and I needed the internet to help complete this paper. So that's how I finally got her to get us AOL in like March, 2000. Okay. Maybe April. What was your first internet username on AOL. <laughs> well, it was, of course, Italian Stallion OA. <laughs> was Stallion spelled like Italian? Because obviously someone had already taken Italian Stallion OA with yes. the correct spelling. All names were taken. Uh, I don't know if it was by this, this year or the next one that I moved on to. The dogs are out because of that. Was, that was the summer of 2000, wasn't it? Oh my god, yeah, that was the summer of 2000. The Mariners are responsible for who let the dogs out, aren't they? I don't know if that's true. They might take credit for it, but I'm pretty skeptical. No, like, they play it. I mean, first off, this song actually came out in 98, I think. Did it really? No. Oh, no, no, I guess that's It came out in the the summer of 2000. Yeah, it came out in the summer of 2000, you're right. Uh, Let's see. In June 2000, Greg Green, then director of promotions for the Seattle Mariners, was the first to play the Baja men's version of Who Let the Dogs Out at a Major League Baseball game. Wow. Two days, it beat the joke. Tune is a joke for the team's backup catcher, Joe Oliver. 
Two days later, shortstop Alex Rodriguez requested the song be used as his walk-up music, and it quickly became a Mariners team anthem. Yes. The Bahamas performed at Safeco Field during a Mariners game wow. in September 2000. Who did let the dogs out? Uh, my first username was the G-Code 08, <laughs> named after Juvenile's follow-up to the record 400 Degrees, which I don't even know if I could like really tell you any of these songs that are on this record. Uh, but I felt very strongly about the G-Code. The 08 must have come from Rich Amaral, maybe? <laughs> yes, this of course did my 08. <laughs> okay, but but so so we had this. So we were on AOL like chat, uh, eventually AOL Instant Messenger aim. And so I because of that math competition, I missed the hydroplane races in the Tri-Cities. Wow. Uh, a big Commitment. sacrifice. Commitment to so that. So you were over there hanging out with the famous cousin Katie and our other cousin Chris. And I remember the joke that summer. Like, first off, there was a lot of talk about you playing country grammar for our younger cousin Kyle. And the other thing I remember is you guys, or maybe it was Michael, maybe it was Michael instead, uh, using the term LFO in play, like the band in place of LMAO. Oh, my God. That's that's the other thing I remember. Wow. Yeah, what a time. You cracking your second beer, though? Uh, yeah. uh, some other things that happened in the year 2000. I'm pretty sure that I had my first kiss. There you go. Uh, which I'm pretty sure that you dropped me off there uh, at the Des Moines Park Marina, right? It sounds about right. It probably rolled up in the blazer. Rolled up in the blazer. You, I don't know what you did. You just sat in the blazer or whatever. <laughs> or maybe you left and then came and picked me up. I spent a I, lot of time I, in Des Moines around then. Probably would have visited one of my friends in Normandy Park, I assume. Uh, this was right behind the QFC where the fish is kissing a man, right? Uh, not right behind, but pretty, it's in that vicinity. Pretty close. Well, the QFC isn't open anymore. It's gone. Yeah, this has been as your update in Des Moines QFCs. R.I.P. Uh, but a, a lot of a lot of my first uh, relation, I was going to say sexual experiences. Well, I don't think we need to go that far. But oh, <laughs> oh no, what is happening? A lot of my first relationship experiences definitely happen at the Des Moines Park Marina, though. Of course, it, no, it's technically Des Moines Beach, right? Not the marina. I mean, it's next to the marina, but Des Moines Beach in the woods next to Des Moines Beach, <laughs> down a walking trail. And that person who this was really and this might have been why I transitioned from listening to like exclusively rap to exclusively rock. The person who is my first ever girlfriend in the year 2000, who, again, I think her her username was Roxy Girl 44 uh, because she loved the clothing brand Roxy, uh, which most of us did at the time, of course. I, there was this was band. the style of the time. <laughs> there was some band that she was so into, and I wish I could remember who they were. I've like scoured them. They're a tiny pop punk band. Was but, 2000 the year that we tried to get uh, Skilo to make a comeback? We've always tried to get Skilo to make a comeback. Um, it probably was though. I think so. You were briefly like Skilo's distributor in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> really presaged your career in music. Uh-huh. But. Dating her and her being into this, like, probably very popular pop-punk band, although I cannot remember who they were and cannot find them on the internet, was really the first time that I was ever introduced to subcultures. There you go. And it was like, I had never, I didn't know that culture existed 
outside of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? It was like, if it's not on the Box Music Channel and it's not on, like, Q93, like, I do not know that it exists. And I feel like I always had an like an interest in thing like trying to push deeper or whatever or maybe it was like like the thing that that predisposes you for being quote-unquote indie or whatever interested in subcultures is being like a little bit more obsessive about things if that makes sense could be um although in my case it just became like pussy on the front office football message board that, I mean, it's it's a similar thing, though, right? Like, it's a similar yeah, there's, experience. There's some crossover. Where it's like, you're just trying to learn more about something. And I feel like like being obsessed with Seinfeld in a way where it's like, I want to uh, know yeah. everything about this. It's not like, I don't just want to like casually enjoy it. It's like, I want to know all the different parts to this. That's you want to memorize that Seinfeld magazine that Entertainment Weekly put out. Yes, that's how you end up on Seahawks Twitter. Um, <laughs> it really is. So... Uh, it really is. Uh, I want to I talk about a Rolling Stone article about Omaha in a couple of years, but I distinctly remember reading the Rolling Stone review, because at this point I had started like reading Rolling Stone a little bit, trying to just care more, and I'm pretty sure, God, I wonder if this timeline is right, I'm going to look this up, if that, I know Kid A had come out in the year 2000, and it was just like, I didn't know who Radiohead were. I didn't care who Radiohead were. But it's something that, like, long-term, I was like, I know that this band is important. Oh, no, this is later. Okay. Uh, but it was like reading that review and being like, hmm, this sounds interesting, and then moving on with my life. <laughs> it was like I the, the process of me ever listening to a Radiohead song from today if it wasn't on the box and it wasn't on MTV, I had no means to listen to it, right? Besides that $25 gift card to Tower Records. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That which, was already earmarked. Yeah, yeah. That was earmarked for Eminem. So it's like, th this was, I, I feel like I had an inkling of trying to be interested in music that was like a little bit deeper than mainstream music, but it was just like, the, the, it wasn't available, right? I mean, it's interesting the stark contrast between now. If you hear about Radiohead or whatever, which this this is at the time Radiohead seemed like an indie band to me, it's so much easier for you to have access to these things in the internet era, in the Spotify era. But then it was just like there was an insurmountable wall to get to that music. Yeah. Have you checked in with our friends at Hip Hop? goldenage.com well i feel like we should talk for one second about 2000 in film because well i, I have you, you you want to do that first no 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 i want to talk about hiphopgoldenage.com last of course uh, all right i feel like i just have no strong feelings about any of the films that came out in the year 2000 there has not been a rewatchable 2000 2000 series there, there are may plenty not of rewatchable films right gladiator uh castaway crouching tiger hidden dragon uh, i've never seen the movie castaway Almost famous, remember, the Titans, uh, American Psycho came out in the year 2000, Aaron Brockovich, Show oh Brother Where Art Thou, Chocolat, uh, Memento, like, there, there were a lot of, there were a lot of very good movies that came out, really, Mel Gibson was involved in way too many of them, um, but it's just like, I, there's, I don't, oh, hello, one film did come out in the year 2000 that we identified with, I take it all back, Shaft? Shaft! 
We were so excited. We went to a premiere of it somehow, and then went to it again when it opened in the theater. That was like a thing around the time. There's in the song "Damn It" by Blink One Eighty Two. They're like, and I might see you at a movie sneak preview or whatever. And I'm like, I really identify that with that because around this time, the late '90s and early 2000s, we went to so many sneak preview movies. Me way more than like, you for whatever reason. But Jan was fucking yeah. up on it, right? She was like, if you have to go to a car toys and get these like weird giant tickets to go to a sneak preview at a movie at Pacific Place, Jan was there, right? Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, we're going. Shaft, we're going, right? Yeah. Shaft was great. The the scene, the pistol whipping scene set to Woe by Black Rob. Oh, I love that song. That is all that we cared about. Free Black Rob. Is Black Rob free now? Was he not free? He was definitely not free. Oh, dang. Okay. Uh, Sentenced to over seven years in prison in 2006. Was released in March 2000, May 2010. So there you go. That's good. Happy that Black Rob is free. Top 40 hip-hop albums of the year 2000. So... Our friends at HipHopGoldenAge.com, wow, man, there's a lot of... I do have to say that the the world of quote-unquote indie rap, we'll probably talk about this a little bit more later on, but it's like the year 2000 is when it really starts happening. And the first time that I'd ever heard of this artist, Common, uh, before, <laughs> before Common became who he became, the light and... Before he became the the uh, intro for all-star weekend for the all-star game like water for chocolate was like this was the common album that that got the mainstream interested in him right and hearing the light on cube i was like this is weird but i like it <laughs> at number two by deltron 3030 which gorillas released their their first ep in the year 2000 uh there's the record deltron 3030 oh man we've talked about the other side of Black Star last week. This week, we have Reflection Eternal, Talib Kweli, and High Tech. We're, like, so close to Kanye. Yes. You know? At number four, as mentioned earlier, Stankonia. And at number five, also as mentioned earlier, the Marshall Mathers LP by Eminem. Uh, wow, Fish Scale came out that year, too. Or no, Supreme Clientele, sorry. Uh, and your your record that you love the most they play the song about eating right let's get free by dead press <laughs> right this is like a pretty seminal year for like not quite underground rap music but like pretty left of center rap music this is like a good chunk of the music that would really come to define like the next five to ten years yeah <sighs> Do we remember the year 2000? I think we remember the year 2000. Well, I'm curious now. I'm going to go through the uh, the following is a list of events affecting American television in 2000, whether there's anything we should... Uh, Man, uh, I looked I looked that up, and I was just like... It was, Letterman had quintuple heart bypass surgery. I saw that. I remember that. It, it was like was pre-Post-Seinfeld, oh, pre-Eurasian world ends its seven-season run. I know, yeah, it is true. You didn't want to bring that up? 
It's true. Big Brother debuts? Man, we, we loved us some early Big Brother. See, Big Brother Season 2, I felt like, was the one that we needed to true, talk about. True, true. I don't think we watched Season 1. That's fair. Uh, Survivor's first season. Not that we watched that. All right, that's about it. It was a pretty forgettable year. I mean, I, I think the year 2000, like when you talk about Survivor, I remember Survivor being at Katie and, or Katie and Ben's house, uh, <clears throat> at Katie's house over the summer, and watching the first ever Probst series of Survivor and being, I like, I was not that interested in it in general, but it's, it's one of those shows that like you tune in for a little bit and then you're sucked in for a second, but then you can let it go after. Does that make sense? That sounds right. And I remember doing that with the first season of Survivor and like they were watching it religiously because they only had four channels. Um, <laughs> and it was like, I watched an episode and I was like, I'm so fucking in on this. When is there more? And then the next week I'd forgotten about it or whatever. But it was like, this was really, there was who wants to be a millionaire was a big part of it. And then this, but it was like, when I think about TV in modern terms, like scripted television on network TV is not really a thing. And Survivor is what is where scripted television is going or is where network television is going. At that point, uh, yes. And now to this day, is, I think about it now, where I'm like, eh, The Bachelor is yeah. cheap programming, right? Yeah. Like, think about how cheap, and just fucking ABC, just like, put it on however many times you can a week, because you can have super cheap programming that can take up hours of television. The, the Bachelor is terrific. Uh, you know what we should have talked about in 1999 TV, but we can talk about it quickly here, is the Tom Green show. Oh, wow. It's not the Green Tom show. It's literally any time there's something called, like, a podcast called, like, the Mina Kimes show, anything like that, in my head, I will always go, it's not the last name, first name show because of that. We were talking about the children, like, this YouTube channel called Unspeakable, where we were talking about, it's basically, like, <clears throat> those shows of kids, like, youngish, white, suburban kids kind of just fucking around. Like, they don't they don't really exist on TV anymore. They've moved to YouTube, but they were completely influenced by, like, Tom Green, and Tom Green was kind of the first one, and then Jackass. Yeah, which also debuted, which did debut in 2000, Jackass. All right. His bum is on the Swedish. That song was, like, in the TRL top ten. Yes. Oh, my God. What a bleak time. It was the instant number one hit on TRL. And then, uh, according to Wikipedia, he quickly called for the video to be retired because, quote, it's not fair to 98 degrees. Tom Green said that. <laughs> Later, in his autobiography, he revealed that MTV had pressured him to do so in order to maintain the image that Total Request Live was, in fact, a live request show because the next week's episodes had been pre-taped on location and the producers of this show were completely unaware of the Bum Bum show- song at the time it was recorded. So there you go. Oh, man. Also, by the way, 2000, so many hanging chads jokes. Wait, so, oh, wow, we didn't even talk about the presidential election. I guess I don't know if we need to go into Well, it. just the, the last thought on the presidential election is, I feel like this was the last election that I was a part of that I just had no idea and I didn't care. I mean, you weren't a part of it. You couldn't vote yet. Well, yeah, I, I guess I legally was not a part of it, but, like, of my lifetime, I could not in the year have... 2000 have told you what a democrat was or what a republican was right like i didn't know all i knew a lockbox 
But like, <laughs> it was just like sort of like a weird filter through SNL. And I was like, I have a general sense that George Bush is dumb. And I have a general sense that Al Gore's boring. Right? Yeah, that was really all anyone knew in that election. But I, I don't understand like what the actual differences in these things make. And let me give you a spoiler alert for 2004. I started caring a lot. <laughs> we were told at the time by Ralph Nader that the both parties were the same. He may still be right. I don't. I think that the uh, subsequent 20 years have proven him definitively wrong. No. I agree to disagree.